This is a huge story. I mean, it is going to cover all the millennia of time. <laughs> so there are a lot of characters, heroes and villains alike. What I want you to see is that it's God who is the mastermind behind this story. He is writing the story. So even if you forget some of those minor characters, you will not forget the main character. You will not be able to forget the king of glory. And right now, all these little minor characters are kind of whispering his name. They're giving us clues about when he'll come and what he'll be like. We get the sense that beneath the surface, God is working, and he's going to raise up this special person to fix everything that went wrong in the garden. But we don't know when, and we're not even sure how he's going to do it. So we're just searching the unfolding stories for clues. And that story, remember, began in paradise. God and his people together in a perfect home where his people rule the world that he has made for them. But a snake crept into that home, and he told Adam and Eve lies about God. And then Adam and Eve broke God's one law, ushering a worldwide curse into the world and that abrupt end to paradise. But God, rather than killing Adam and Eve and just starting over, because that was, that was the punishment against them for their disobedience, but instead of killing Adam and Eve, God revealed he had a plan to save it all. And he prophesied about a snake crusher who would descend from the woman. And so Adam and Eve began to multiply, but their first boy murders their second son, and reality hits them full force. Outside the garden, the heart of man is just as barren as the ground. Murder is now in the heart of man. But God's plan is still on track. Another boy is born, and he is fruitful. And this is where we start to get genealogy after genealogy. So we know that lots of people are multiplying. But what multiplies as the people multiply? That's right. Their sin is also multiplying. And so God chooses Noah as a warning of coming judgment. But the people of the world ignore Noah, and they ignore God's words. And instead, they align themselves with the snake. So God curses them like he cursed the snake, and he judges the world in a worldwide flood, saving just one man, one man who listened to God's words and believed them, and he saves his family. So we have a new beginning here because Noah doesn't just represent judgment. He represents a brand new beginning. And God blesses him like he did Adam and Eve. He tells him to be fruitful and multiply. He gives him dominion. So this is Eden all over again, right? Well, just as quickly as sin destroyed paradise, sin taints this new beginning. Noah and his family are no different from Adam and Eve. And we see that the normal process of human multiplication cannot produce the hero the world needs to crush the snake and reverse the curse. Is God's plan still on track? Well, last week we saw that murder won't prevent the birth of the snake crusher. After the death of Abel, God raised up Seth. We also saw that sin and rebellion won't get God's plan off track because God preserved the line of the woman through Noah. And in the next chapter, we see that despite this confluence of sin and enemies, God's plan is still on track. And here is where we meet an old man and his old barren wife. And we learn that old age and infertility cannot derail God's plan. Now, if you were casting a play about a great hero who has a big triumph over a cruel villain, you would probably not pick these two people as two of your main characters. But God rarely does what we expect. So he t it is this couple that he chooses. He tells them to leave their father and their homeland to go to another country and wait. They wait for God to give them offspring. They wait for him to make that offspring into a great nation. And then he asks them to die in the waiting process. But to die in faith, believing that God would do as he said. He would raise up their descendants into a great nation that would produce kings one of whom would bring an earthwide blessing 
to reverse this worldwide curse. And you know what? That old man and his old barren wife, they had their struggles, but they believed God. And they did just what he said. And in time, they celebrated the birth of their baby boy, Isaac, the son of promise. But they celebrated his birth in a strange land, far away from their families. Well, that's where we left the story off last week. And it's where we'll start in about 25 minutes after you review some of the homework that you completed for this week. Okay, before we start back in with Isaac, the son of promise, I want to just take a few minutes and reflect on what we've learned about the author of our story, because God is intentionally illustrating his character through this story. He wants us to know what he is like, so he's showing us. So these are foundational claims I'm going to make about God's character, and we need to build every thought you have about God. Every prayer that you utter needs to be built on these bedrock truths that we have seen illustrated so far in the story. And the first, God has shown us that he is good. So we can see this just by looking at the world he has made. Even after he cursed it because of sin, it is still a beautiful world, and it is capable still of being fruitful and providing sustenance for all of its creatures. And that is only because God is good. But we also see his goodness in the marriage design. So marriage was not just for the multiplication of the species, but for our enjoyment and our fellowship. So Adam was actually lonely in the garden before God created Eve. If you remember from Genesis 2, uh, God fills out the details of how he created Adam and Eve, and he created Adam first, and then he brought him all the animals, and Adam is busy naming the animals, and he's like, wait a second, there's two of each kind. Every animal has its counterpart, but there's no counterpart for me. And God says, yes, it's not good for you to be alone, and he makes Eve. And then after Eve is made, he says it is very good. So this is because God is good. He created marriage. He designed it for our, not just so the two can rule together and multiply, but so that they can have fellowship and enjoyment. So what we should see from this is that God's heart is kind. It is really good. But second, God has also shown us that he is just. He cannot overlook sin and disobedience, and we don't want him to. Sin is what destroyed paradise in the first place. So it, we, we got to get rid of it, right? And it's just getting worse because with the multiplication of people comes the multiplication of sin. And we've learned something else. We've learned that God will deal with sin according to his law. And this is why we say he's just. And the penalty for sin always has been and always will be death. And God will deal with sin according to law in a just way. So he will deal with it with death, right? And we all die. But third, not only is God just, he is also merciful. So he did not immediately require Adam and Eve's lives after they sinned. Instead, he made a plan to save them, and he even gave them a vital role in accomplishing that plan. You know, they could have said, we don't want children. We're just going to end this here and now. But they didn't. They listened to God's words. They believed his promise, and in faith, they had babies. And then God's plan began to unfold. And last week, I was wanted to be careful to make this point. We've also seen God's mercy in that he never judges without warning. Do you remember this? So his mercy is expressed in patience as he waits and he waits and he delays and he delays his judgment in order to warn people and give them time to hear his words and repent. And God's justice and mercy, these two qualities are exactly what we see in the story of Abraham's nation. Okay, God continues to speak to Israel. So many words he speaks to Israel, and yet so many of them harden their hearts to his words. But there are some, the heroes, who listen and believe, and that is all God requires of any of us. 
if you will listen, if you will believe his words, you can exchange God's curse for his blessing. You can be counted among the heroes, but you have to listen and you have to believe. I was reading in Matthew just a couple minutes ago. Jesus actually speaks these words after John the Baptist expresses some doubt about God's plan. He says, blessed is he who does not, who is not offended because of me. And you know, as you read this story, you're going to have questions. We're human and we still have this, like Adam and Eve, we kind of have that natural suspicion of God at some times. But what you need to do is keep listening. <laughs> And keep believing and pressing and blessed are you if you are not offended because of Jesus. Okay, so as you listen to the story, recognize God is still speaking. These words are to Israel, but they are very much for you. Will you believe? And that is the question Abraham and all his offspring are confronted with in our story today. And it is the question for you. So let's pray once more and we'll dive back in. Father, open our ears to listen and open our hearts and give them faith to believe. I pray that you would shore up areas of doubt in our hearts and help us to see you truly as you are. And don't let us be deceived by the lies the snake continues to tell. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah, they die in the land of their sojournings. They died in the land that God did not give them, but he promised to their offspring. But even though they died, God's promise did not die with them. Isaac, their son of promise, marries Rebekah, who we quickly discover is also barren. So once more we wonder, okay, what's going to happen to God's plan? But Isaac prays for his wife, and God opens her womb. And she gets pregnant with twins. And right away, there's something kind of off about this pregnancy. She feels a wrestling and a struggling inside of her womb. So she asks the Lord, why is this happening to me? And in Genesis 25, 23, God tells Rebekah, two nations, there's a word we are starting to see a lot, two nations are in your womb. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, now God is always surprising us. This is something we see in the story over and over again. More barren women, that's how you're going to accomplish your plan. And now you're choosing not the firstborn, but the secondborn. And I really can't overstate to you just how much privilege the firstborn son enjoyed in ancient cultures. So this is actually a very surprising reversal of God's. God opens wombs, and he chooses against all expectations to elevate the second-born son over the firstborn. Well, Rebekah gives birth to Esau and Jacob, and that wrestling that started in utero just carries on outside of the womb. Now, Jacob, though he was chosen by God, is not a good person, and we wonder not for the first time, and certainly not for the last, why did God choose him? I mean, Jacob is a deceiver. He kind of takes after his mother, because together, the two of them deceive an old, blind Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing of the firstborn rather than Esau. So God had already promised that the older would serve the younger, but Rebekah and Jacob lacked faith here, and they connived to ensure Jacob got that blessing instead of waiting and trusting as Abraham had done. Well, when Esau discovers that he has been deprived of his rights, he tries to kill Jacob, and Jacob flees for his life, and he goes back to Abraham's country, his old country, the one God called Abraham to leave. And life is not easy for Jacob there. He is deceived by his uncle, who becomes his father-in-law. And you can't help but feel a little sense of poetic justice for Jacob. But God teaches Jacob to trust him during these long years, and he teaches him to wait and to desire God's blessing. And Jacob is fruitful in this land. He and his wives have 12 sons and at least one daughter. 
His wealth also multiplies here, and eventually he returns a prosperous man to his father, and he makes an uneasy peace with Esau. Well, Jacob had a favorite wife. Her name was Rachel, and the Bible says she is beautiful in form and face. So you kind of feel sorry for her sister Leah, who is also Jacob's wife and is not beautiful. But you know who else has pity on Leah? God does. He sees that she is unloved, and he opens her womb and gives her lots and lots of babies, specifically lots of baby boys. Well, eventually, God takes pity on Rachel as well, and he allows her to give birth to Joseph, who scripture tells us kind of takes after his mom, and he grows up to be a very nice-looking man. Well, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and Jacob really takes very few pains to hide that. He gives Joseph a beautiful technicolor dream coat. Just kidding, wrong story. He gives him a rich robe of many colors. And his brothers, not surprisingly, are really jealous about this. Joseph's brothers actually hate him. And you know, Joseph didn't always make it easy for his brothers to like him. That's what I tell my daughter. Make it easy for your brothers to like you. But he kept having these dreams, okay, about how all his brothers would bow down to him. He even has a dream about how the sun and moon are going to bow down to him. And he tells his brothers, you know, so we might say today he wasn't very emotionally intelligent. So what did Joseph's brothers do? They plot to kill him, all except Reuben the firstborn and Judah. Reuben intends to save Joseph later, so he kind of goes along with this plot, but Judah wants to mitigate the plot against Joseph. He says, let's not kill him. I mean, he is our own flesh and blood after all. Let's sell him as a slave to this band of Ishmaelite traders passing along the road. So Judah's plan wins the day, and Joseph is carried off to Egypt, where we eventually find him in prison. You know, last week I said that God will accomplish his plan not in spite of his enemy's opposition, but actually through their opposition. And we see that at play right here in the story of Joseph. What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God meant for good. God eventually rescues Joseph from that prison, and he elevates him to be second in command just under the Pharaoh in Egypt. And remember those dreams Joseph had? Well, they all come true. His brothers all end up bowing before him when they arrive in Egypt to escape a worldwide famine. And here we see another reversal of the curse. So Joseph has food in the time of famine. And Joseph, despite his brother's curse, is thriving in Egypt. And now Abraham's fledgling nation of 70 people moves to Egypt, just as God told Abraham would happen in the vision where Joseph, their brother, cares for them. And here they live in peace for many years. And the Bible is very clear when we get to Exodus 1-7 that this little band of 70 people were fruitful. It says they were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So God's plan is very much on track. Barrenness, not a problem. Evil plotting, not a problem. Worldwide famine, all in God's plan. So let's leave Joseph now and his brothers in Egypt. We'll come right back there. But we need to talk about one of the other sons of Jacob because he gets a prominent place in the story. We're going to talk about Judah. This is the one who commuted Joseph's death sentence down to slavery. Well, he lives a bit of a checkered life in his early years. So he marries a woman and has a couple sons whom we find that God actually kills very early in their lives because they are wicked men. Well, without getting into ancient customs, I'll just say that Judah did not treat Tamar fairly. Tamar was the widow of both of those sons who had died, and, and Judah treats her very unfairly. The law required him to give her to another one of his sons, but he refused to do it, making her a childless widow. And that really was just about the worst thing that could have happened to a woman in those days. Once Tamar's father died, she would have had no recourse, no property, 
no income, and no family to take her in. She would have been poor and homeless and completely vulnerable. But Judah ignored all this, and he did not honor her by keeping the custom of the day. He withheld his youngest son from her. Well, in her desperation, Tamar does something repulsive. She entraps her unwitting father-in-law into sleeping with her and becomes pregnant by him with twins. Well, when Judah realizes Tamar is pregnant, he threatens to have her killed for her immorality. But when, it, when he discovers that she is pregnant with his children, he admits, this is what he says in Genesis 38, 26, she is more righteous than I am. And this is a turning point for Judah. He accepts the blame for his sin, and he fathers those twins, though he never does, again, sleep with Tamar. When we see Judah next, he is behaving honorably, and he is taking leadership among the brothers. So he is not the firstborn, but he is playing the role of the firstborn when the brothers arrive in Egypt. Okay, so now we're at the end of Genesis. Joseph has provided for his family in Egypt. They are safe and prospering here, but Jacob is dying, and he gathers all his sons together around his deathbed, and in Genesis 49.1, he says, listen, and I'm going to tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So he's telling them, I'm going to prophesy about your futures. And it is in his words to Judah, where we find our next prophecy about the promised snake crusher. And we're going to focus on verse 10 of chapter 49. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, or as many other translations read, to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Okay, the words that carry the meaning in this sentence are scepter, ruler, staff, obedience, and peoples. So scepter and ruler, staff, pretty obviously here, show rule, right? And dominion. And now, very specifically, kingship. I mean, who else wields a scepter other than a king? So this verse definitively teaches us that the snake crusher will be a king. Abraham's earthwide blessing will come through an Israelite king now descending, very specifically, from the line of Judah. But this verse also shows that this Israelite king won't just rule Israel, we see that in the word peoples or nations. So that word people from the ESV is the same family of words as the words families from Genesis 12. So we can connect these two prophecies. In fact, many Bible translators translate Genesis 12:3 as all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So we can begin to see that God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth through this king of glory. People from every nation will be his subjects. That's what that word obedience is getting at. Loyal subjects obey their sovereign. So this king will rule. They will rule like Adam and Eve were supposed to have ruled in the garden. So in summary, the king of glory which we now know is an Israelite descending from Judah, will rule the world when he comes. And his rule is somehow going to bring about that earthwide blessing promised to Abraham. So Abraham's blessing had passed from Abraham to his son Isaac to Isaac's second-born Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. Sorry, so many names. And now Jacob is passing that blessing on to Judah rather than on to his firstborn, Reuben. And now the stage is set. We, are, we know we need to wait for a king to be born from Judah's line. And we already know we're going to wait several hundred years at least because of what God told Abraham in Genesis 15, where he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Well, in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, that's precisely what happens. The story unfolds exactly as God said it would. Israel grows into a large nation of people in Egypt so that the Pharaoh begins to fear them. He worries. They're getting, they're getting huge. And he thinks, oh, my goodness, what if they join with my enemies and depose me and take over? So he begins to heavily oppress them. He forces them into slavery. And they are required to make bricks for Egypt's building projects. And the work is very hard. And Pharaoh hopes to break their spirits and their bodies and their numbers by forced labor. But the more he oppresses them, the more they multiply. They just get bigger and stronger. So in addition to oppressing them with forced labor, he begins to kill their baby boys. Remember... Murder is in the heart of the snake and in the heart of his offspring. So right away, what we learn something about Pharaoh. And once more, we also begin to wonder if God's plan is in jeopardy due to this conflict be- that's raging between the snake and the woman. But again, God easily overthrows Pharaoh's curse on his people, and he does it in a surprising way. First, he uses two young Hebrew midwives who refuse to obey Pharaoh and let the baby boys live. But then he actually uses Pharaoh's own daughter to thwart his evil plan. When she finds a Hebrew baby boy floating in a basket down the Nile River, her natural affections just win the day, don't they? She sees this cute little baby boy and he's all alone in that basket and she keeps him eventually bringing him into Pharaoh's own household, where he grows up to be Israel's deliverer. So God heard his people's misery. He, he answers their cry for deliverance, and he raises up Moses from within Pharaoh's own household to deliver them. And in Exodus 4.22, we find Moses speaking to Pharaoh with these words from God. So God, this is Moses speaking God's words to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So a couple things here. First, something we've already noticed about God. He, he is once again very clear about the consequences if Pharaoh won't listen and obey. He is warning him. God is always just. Second, this is the first time God speaks of having a son. We did not know this about God until this moment. He has a son. And remember, Abraham was called to leave his father to start a new family. And God is claiming that family who has grown into a big nation. He claims that whole nation as his firstborn son. And this is a preview of how God will relate to his people. He's going to relate to his people like a father relates to his children. So like Abraham, God's people have left their father, the snake, and they have found a new father in God. But third thing, I just want to put this in your head for you to be thinking about. If Israel is God's firstborn son, well, she gets the privileged position of firstborn, right? But remember how God treated Jacob, the secondborn? Remember how Abraham's blessing passed to Judah rather than Reuben? How do you suppose God will treat those of us who aren't biologically descended from Abraham? Well, keep reading the story, because I think you're going to find out that all the rights of the firstborn are ours. But back to Pharaoh. Does he heed God's warning? No, he is energized by the spirit of his father, the snake. He refuses to let Israel go. Nine destructive plagues, and still he won't let them go. And then finally, God keeps his word, and he takes the life of all of Egypt's firstborn sons. And only then does Pharaoh reluctantly let them go. 
And as they go, Israel plunders the Egyptians who just open up their coffers and give them anything they want, gold, silver, rich clothing. And this fulfills God's promise to Abraham from hundreds of years ago that his nation would leave with great possessions. But because I wouldn't want you to miss God's mercy, even on the oppressors, the Bible points out in Exodus 12, 38, that a mixed multitude left Egypt. Some Egyptians go with Israel, and they become a part of the blessed people of God. But Pharaoh, even after the devastation of his country and his own family, he changes his mind, and he chases after Israel on their way out of Egypt. And Israel, not for the first time, certainly not for the last, they panic, and they doubt God's promise. But Moses entreats them to just stand still and watch the Lord work for you, and work he does. God displays his power and might like no one had ever seen before. I mean, not since the creation and the flood are we told of such mighty acts of God. So in our story so far, God has mostly been working in a multitude of small reversals, overcoming murderous plots, opening wombs, redeeming Joseph from slavery, employing Hebrew midwives. But here... In order to rescue his people from their enemies, God opens a way through the sea. He defies the laws of nature, and he just forges a dry path right through the deep waters so that his people can cross over dry land to safety. And then he releases those waters. He sends them back to their boundaries and drowns the mighty Egyptian army. And Israel did just what Moses said. They watched that day. They watched God keep his promise to curse those who had cursed them, his promise to preserve their lives in order to make them into a great nation. And they emerged from the sea that day with the power of God behind them and the wealth of Egypt in their pockets. And they started their march to the promised land the promised land of Canaan, the place of Abraham's sojournings. So is this the new beginning? Is this how God is going to remake Eden? Well, I think you know the answer. One enemy was crushed, but not the snake. He has other offspring. In fact, just a few days into their wilderness journey, the Amalekites will come out and try to attack weary Israel. And we see that this battle between the snake and the woman rages on. But those, and those are just the enemies without. There is also an enemy within. And both must be destroyed. And we see very quickly into our wilderness journey that the enemy within is going to rear its ugly head just like it did in the Garden of Eden, just like it did in the beginning with Noah and his new beginning. So the Israelites, even after seeing God's miraculous power firsthand, begin to doubt that God will keep his promises. They hear his words, but they do not believe. And they begin to complain about the lack of food, about the lack of water, and they begin this vicious cycle of doubting God's words and rebelling against them. And then God punishes them, and the cycle repeats itself. But God, as I said before, God speaks to Israel just as we've seen him speaking to so many people throughout our story. He actually speaks audibly from Mount Sinai in all of their hearing when he promises to be their God if, and to, to be their God and to make them his precious people if they will listen to his words and if they will obey them. But like Adam and Eve, like Noah, the words are barely out of the mouth of God before they are broken. And very quickly we find Israel worshiping a false god of their own creation, the golden calf. Well, God has proved himself more powerful than the enemy without. What is God going to do about the enemy within, the enemy in the hearts of his own people? And to answer that question... We need to read the words of a very unlikely spokesman for God. And we find that God intends to crush all these enemies through, the, through a king of his choice. 
So our next prophecy finds Israel near the end of their wilderness wanderings. So they had refused to go into the promised land when they saw the enemies that they would have to fight. So once again, though Israel had heard God's words, most of them did not listen or believe. So God consigned them to roaming the wilderness for 40 years until the generation of fighting men died off. And he said, that's fine. I will take your children into the promised land. Well, Israel has very nearly lived out that sentence. They are on the cusp of entering the promised land. They've already defeated the Amorites, and now they are camped out on the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Now, something you should know about the Moabites. God had absolutely prohibited Israel from taking any of the Moabites' land because he had given that land to Abraham's nephew Lot and to Lot's descendants, who are the Moabites. Israel had no grief with Moab at this time, but their king picks a fight, doesn't he? And remember what I have said, don't make yourself an enemy of God. But that is precisely what King Balak of Moab does. He is terrified of Israel. It reminds me of Pharaoh. He looks out at these vast hordes of people just covering the plains, and he's scared. What if they attack me? So he joins with the elders of Midian, And together, they offer a lot of money to a sorcerer named Balaam to curse Israel. Now, evidently, Balaam enjoys some fame and even a measure of power. Listen to what Balak says to him in Numbers 22, 5 and 6. He says, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now and curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Well, what does that remind you of? Similar wording to Abraham's blessing, right? So I think we should right away note that Balaam is like a rival prophet to God here. He has some power to bless and curse. But how do you think he is going to fare in a standoff with God? So Balaam is an interesting character in the story, and you don't really get all the pertinent details about him in this first mention of him in Numbers. But what we can surmise from the rest of the story, from all the other places in the Bible that mention Balaam, is that Balaam is a sorcerer for hire. So he practices divination, and he is very interested in the reward that Balak offers him. And at first, he rejects Balak's offer, likely under false pretenses, probably because he wants more money. So when the Moabite and Midianite elders return, he decides to go with them, all the while saying he can only speak if the Lord allows him to. So Balaam is no dummy. He does recognize a superior power. He knows he is, his hands are tied. He can only do what God, speak what God allows him to speak. And he does recognize that God has chosen to bless these people of Israel. So not even for all the money in the world is Balaam going to be able to curse them. But he goes with Balak's men, and an interesting thing happens on the way. God is very angry with Balaam, right? Because he can see what's in Balaam's heart. He can see the greedy intent. So he knows that Balaam would absolutely curse God's people if he could. So God sends an angel to stand in his way. Smart as he is, and as practiced as he is in the dark arts, he cannot see that angel. But you know who does? His donkey. So in terror, the donkey sees this angel, and in terror, she kind of diverts off the path to avoid a confrontation with the angel, and Balaam beats her. The angel moves, the donkey dodges again, this time crushing Balaam's foot. Balaam beats his poor donkey again. On the third encounter, the donkey just lies down in front of the angel, and Balaam again beats her. And then something really surprising happens. God loosens the donkey's tongue, and she speaks. She says, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, we've only seen one other talking animal in our story so far. And that was the snake, 
who our enemy used for his purposes. But here, God opens the mouth of the donkey to let her speak, and she humbles Balaam. And and the funny thing is, Balaam doesn't really seem surprised at all (laughs) that his donkey is speaking to him, because he's probably seen some interesting things in his life as a sorcerer. But he says to her, well, because you humiliated me. And here, the donkey shows superior reasoning to Balaam. Well, am I in the habit of treating you this way? Well, the inference is no. So there must be good reason for her to suddenly run off the road like this. Well, then God opens Balaam's eyes to see what the donkey has seen all along. And the angel tells him, you know, God would certainly have killed you if your donkey had not dodged out of the way. And he makes sure that Balaam knows he will not speak anything other than what God allows him to speak. So Balaam is not a hero in our story. He, not only does he practice divination, and he's greedy, and he beats his, talking, his talking donkey, the real evil in his heart will come out later. But for now, he appears to Balak. Balak begs him to curse Israel, but Balaam is unable to utter anything beyond what God allows. So he speaks seven oracles that bless Israel. So in his oracles, again, he looks out over this vast horde of Israelites just covering the Moabite plains, and we can see Wow, God has kept his promise to Abraham. He has turned these people into a great nation, a nation that outnumbers the sands of the shore and the stars of the sky. That's kind of what Balaam is getting at when he says, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? And then he goes on to describe Israel just like Jacob had described Judah. He describes him as a lion and a lioness crouched down, and who will dare to rouse him? He says, blessed are those who bless you, Israel, and cursed are those who curse you. He utters those words, and it's so astonishing because, he will, because of what he's going to do next. But we'll get there. Next, he speaks of a star rising out of Jacob. He says, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. And so we get, we get the impression that he's speaking of something to pass distant, in the distant future. He says, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So we've already seen that word. And it shall crush, seen that word too. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Ser also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Okay, first things first. Don't curse God's people. Do not, as I have said before, make yourself an enemy of God, or you will inherit the snake's curse. That is what is happening here. Balak tries to curse Israel, and he makes himself the enemy of God. And because of this attempted curse, a king will arise out of Israel that will crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Sheth is probably just another name for Moab. So here we see a familiar word family. Remember, bruise from Genesis can also be translated crush. And then we have these these other words that uh, communicate the same idea, break down, dispossess, destroy. So I hope you marked this Numbers 24 passage on your repeated words chart. But these words help us understand that the snake and his offspring are all cursed, all of the enemies of God will be destroyed. But it's not just Moab's eventual destruction that is prophesied here, it's Edom's. Sarah in verse 18 is another name for Edom. These are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's older twin. Okay, the Edomites were a brother nation to Israel, but they were really hostile toward Israel in the wilderness. You know, God told Israel not even to pick a grape off of Edom's land without paying for it. He, he was protecting Ed, the Edomites from Israel. 
So all Israel wanted to do was to cross through the Edomites' land to get to the promised land. They promised to pay for water and food that they took, and they said they would not, they would not even venture off the road. They were just going to cross straight through. But Edom would not let them step even a foot onto their land. And in fact, they rallied a, an army to um, threaten them if they tried. So Israel, I mean, just weary after their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, had to turn around and take another route to the promised land. So Edom was hostile toward Israel. And look what happens. They get a curse for that, as God promised. Edom here is cursed for that hostility. Something else to see. That word scepter, of course, implies king and rule. And then we actually see the word dominion in Balaam's prophecy. And these are all words we've seen from our previous prophecies. Adam and Eve were to rule. God told them to exercise dominion in Genesis 1:28. Noah was given dominion after the flood. Kings will come from Sarah and Abraham. We saw that in Genesis 17. And then from Genesis 49, we were just told that the king of glory will arise out of Judah. And he will not rule he won't just rule Israel. Who's he going to rule? Yeah, all the nations. And now we know from the mouth of Balaam that one of the ways this king will exercise his dominion over the nations is by judging his enemies. He will not just crush the snake. He will crush all the snake's offspring. And that includes Balaam. Another reason we know Balaam is a villain rather than a hero is because of what he does next. Likely for money, he counsels the Midianites and how they can curse Israel. I mean, he has just spoken the words of God saying, blessed are those who bless you, Israel, and cursed are those who curse you. And yet he turns right around and devises a way to curse Israel. If Midian can tempt Israel to be disloyal to their God, Israel's own God will curse them. And Midian listens to Balaam, and they send their young women into the Israelite camp to seduce the men and introduce foreign gods among them. And many foolish men take the bait, and they bring idols into Israel, and they begin to worship them. So God sends a plague on Israel for breaking their covenant with him again. Well, God's revenge on Midian's treachery is swift. This is one promise he does not delay in keeping. He sends Moses and Israel. This is one of Moses' last acts before God takes him home. But he sends Moses and Israel into war with Midian. They defeat Midian and kill Balaam in the process. So Balaam cursed Israel for money, but in the end, his reward was death. God keeps his promises. Over 400 years have passed, and he's still honoring his promise to curse those who curse Abraham and his nation. So to summarize, Balaam's prophecy, his life, and his death teach us that the king of glory will arise from Israel to crush the snake and all the snake's offspring. And... He will forever, when he does this, he will forever put an end to the great conflict that just rages outside the garden between the snake and between the woman. The snake is at war with the woman. Specifically in the Old Testament, he is at war with her to prevent her from giving birth to the snake crusher. He knows one will be born to destroy him, and he will do everything he can to prevent that birth. But even now, he is at war with women and their children, biological children and spiritual children alike, to prevent the birth of any who might listen to God's word and by listening and believing become the children of God. And I think that is why the attack on women and their babies can be so fierce, because the murderous snake is behind them and he is fixed fixed on destroying God's people. I mean, what he tried to do to Adam and Eve in the garden, he will absolutely try to do to you and to your children. So do not underestimate your enemy. 
But praise God who has already and will continue to triumph over every one of his wicked plans. So three reflections today kind of along these lines. And the first one is, just to say it kind of lightheartedly, who's your daddy? Whose side are you on in this conflict of the ages? As we're going to see in this next week's lesson, even now, God is patiently waiting and he is busy warning people everywhere that you must embrace his king of glory or you will be cursed. But if you hear his warnings and if you embrace his king, you exchange that curse for blessing. Second, We need a paternity test here because we are all born offspring of the snake. We all sin and rebel against God and against his words. We are Adam and Eve. We are Israel. As Psalm 14.3 says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so the curse of death hangs over each one of us. But as I said in the beginning, the question that Israel faced, the question Pharaoh faced, is the question we all face. Will you listen to his words? Will you believe them and find blessing? And how you answer that question determines your parentage. Third, if God has become your father, this is what I want you to see from Israel's story, he has got your back. He is on your side. Look at what he will do for his people. He fights for them and he wins every battle. He avenges his people. He protects them. He breaks the laws of nature and he overrides the curse. There is nothing he won't do to bless his people. In fact, he will, and I have to say it even though we're not to this point in the story, but he will even endure the murder of his own son to save his people. He will not forget the wrongs done to you. He sees and feels your grief and pain. And so connected is our king of glory with his people that when he arrests Paul's attention on the road to Emmaus, and he says to him, why are you persecuting me? He takes your pains and your griefs personally. I hope you know how much he loves you and to what extreme lengths he is willing to go in order to make you his child. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are so good, so good, so much you have done for us to make us your children. But we confess, even as your children, sometimes we still doubt your goodness. We have rebel thoughts that rise up and accuse you of things like injustice and not loving us. So I pray that rather than turning away from this king of glory, we will embrace him and listen to his words. Give us faith to embrace those words and believe them and find your blessing. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.